Chapter 3 of War Stories for My Grandchildren. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nelson Hay. War Stories for My Grandchildren by John Watson Foster. Chapter 3 The Battle of Fort Donelson. Greatly to our relief, the 25th Indiana was surely out of Missouri, with the prospect of active campaigning in Kentucky or Tennessee. Although we had orders to take a steamer for Cairo on January 30, we did not get away from St. Louis till February 2. On the steamer I wrote my wife in a tone which indicated that I was taking a more serious view of our future than I had in Missouri. Quote, it may be that when we get to Cairo, we shall find orders sending us up to Smithland. But wherever we go, you will have abundant rumors of army movements and great battles fought. I trust you will not be unnecessarily alarmed or solicitous. I will write you as often as I can, keeping you as well posted as possible. But I expect I shall only be able to write you at considerable intervals. We will both pray our Heavenly Father to be my guard and protector, and return me safely to my home and dear family again. Let us have faith and hope for the best." Unquote. On the 6th of February, I write again from Cairo. We are quartered here in the barracks, in the muddiest place imaginable. No one who has not been in Cairo knows what mud is. How long we shall remain here is altogether uncertain." Unquote. My next letter was written the ninth on a steamer going up the Tennessee River. Quote, we seem fated to make or commence all our marches on the Sabbath. How often do I long for the enjoyment of one of our home Sabbaths? We were ordered to go aboard the steamboat at nine o'clock Saturday morning, so we had the men up before day to cook two days' rations and were packed up, all ready to leave. But we did not go until noon today, and we should be at Fort Henry tomorrow forenoon. We have 600 barrels of powder on board, which makes traveling a little dangerous, but shall be at Paducah in an hour or two, where it will be unloaded. Our orders are to join General Grant, so I suppose we will be with the Army as it goes forward into Tennessee and south to victory. Quote, I am just in the locality I have been wanting to be all during the war, and I have only to do my duty like a soldier and a man. You must not be unduly solicitous about my welfare or pay much attention to the rumors by telegraph, as they are at first always uncertain and generally erroneous. If our regiment is in an engagement, I will see that a carrier is sent to the first place to get the news home so that if you do not hear, you can be satisfied that all is right. You will remember me in your thoughts and prayers always, and have faith that all will be well." Unquote. This was the last letter I was able to write home until after the Battle of Fort Donelson. On the 10th, our regiment reached Fort Henry on the Tennessee River, which had been captured by General Grant only four days before our arrival. On the 12th, we marched over to the vicinity of Fort Donelson with the rest of General Grant's army. Eleven miles from Fort Henry, 
and situated on the west side of the Cumberland River. We were a part of the division commanded by General Charles F. Smith and which occupied the extreme left of General Grant's army. That army, when it went into camp on the evening of February 12, covered the entire front of the Confederate forces. From our encampment, the rebel line of rifle pits and fortifications could be seen, we occupying one series of bridges and the enemy those confronting ours. The fighting began on the morning of the 13th, our picket lines being pressed toward the enemy's front, mainly to develop their position. In view of the eagerness of my own account in my letters, I quote the part of the official report of Colonel Veach, which relates to the operations of the 25th Indiana on the 13th. Quote, At 10 o'clock a.m., we moved forward in line of battle to the top of the hill which was between us and the enemy's breastworks. Here I received orders to fix bayonets and charge the rebels, and if possible, drive them from their works. The timber was so thick that we could only see here and there a part of the rebel works, but could form no idea of their range or extent. At the foot of the hill, the enemy poured on us a terrible fire of musketry, grape, and canister, and a few shells. The rebel breastworks were now in plain view on the top of the hill. The heavy timber on the hillside had been felled, proving a dense mass of brush and logs. Through and over these obstacles, our men advanced against the enemy's fire with perfect coolness and steadiness, never halting for a moment until they received your order. After a halt of a few minutes, they then advanced within a short distance of the enemy's breastworks, where the fire from a six-pound field piece and twelve-pound howitzer on our right was so destructive that it became necessary to halt and direct the men to lie down to save us from very heavy loss. After remaining under a very heavy fire for two hours and fifteen minutes, with no opportunity to return the fire to advantage, the enemy being almost entirely hid and seeing no movement indicating a further advance from any part of the line, I asked permission to withdraw my regiment. In retiring, owing to the nature of the ground and our exposed position, the men were thrown into slight confusion, but they rallied promptly at the foot of the hill and remained in that position until night, when we moved back, as directed, to the ground we occupied in the morning. We lost in this action 14 killed and 61 wounded." Unquote. On the 14th, the battle was continued almost entirely by our naval forces, the Army taking no part except the pickets and sharpshooters. It was General Grant's hope that the gunboats would be able to silence the Confederate water batteries and pass up the Cumberland, and thus cut off reinforcements to the enemy. But in this they failed and were forced to retire. In view of this situation, it was the intention of Grant to establish a siege of the fortifications and await reinforcements. But on the morning of the 15th, our right wing under General McClernand was attacked in force, the enemy coming out of their entrenchments with the apparent intention of cutting their way through our line and abandoning the fort. McClernand being hard pressed, General Lew Wallace's division went to his assistance and the battle raged in that direction with great intensity all the forenoon. We lay upon our arms in line of battle, ready and impatient to take part in the contest, listening to the roar of battle in the distance. General Smith, our division commander, about three o'clock in the afternoon, 
received orders to advance upon the enemy in our front, and immediately our attacking force was formed by Lauman's brigade, in column of regiments, consisting of the 25th Indiana and three Iowa regiments, General Smith himself leading the attack. It was a martial sight, this column of regiments advancing down into the ravine and ascending the hill on which were located the enemy's fortifications. Struggling through the abatis of falling timber, with the bullets whistling thick among our ranks. But it was an event of only a few minutes. Our column, never halting, was soon in front of the entrenchments, when the enemy broke and fled, and the day was won. Colonel Veach says in his report that the skirmishers of the 25th Indiana were among the first, if not the very first, to enter the fortifications. General Grant, in his account of this charge, says, quote, The outer line of rifle pits was passed, and the night of the 15th, General Smith, with much of his division, bivouacked within the line of the enemy. There was now no doubt but that the Confederates must surrender or be captured the next day, unquote. It was an inspiring sight for us as we ascended the hill, the general on his white horse, hat in hand, waving us forward into the enemy's lines. He was the hero of the battle. On the 19th, General Halleck telegraphed to Washington, quote, Smith, by his coolness and bravery at Fort Donelson, when the battle was against us, turned the tide and carried the enemy's outworks, unquote. General Sherman, in his memoirs, has this to say of the capture of Fort Donelson, quote, He, General Charles F. Smith, was a very handsome and soldierly man of great experience, and at Donelson had acted with so much personal bravery that to him may be attributed the success of the assault. Unquote. Although this charge of our brigade, last fighting of the battle, was the decisive event which brought about the surrender, it was attended with little bloodshed. The charge was so rapid and the enemy's fire so unsteady that we entered the entrenchments with little loss of life. More men were killed and wounded in the fight of the 25th on the first day of the battle, as described in Colonel Veach's report, than by the entire brigade in this charge so decisive in its result. At dawn on the morning of the 16th, white flags were seen along the whole of the enemy's lines, and the notes of a bugle were heard by us advancing to the outworks where our brigade had bivouacked during the night. It announced an officer who delivered to General Smith a letter to General Grant from the rebel commander, General Buckner, asking upon what terms he would receive a surrender. General Grant's famous reply was, quote, no terms except an unconditional surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately on your works, unquote. The forces engaged as given by General Grant were 21,000 Confederates and 27,000 Federals. The only extant account of the battle I sent home was written to my wife on the day after the surrender, dated the 17th. Quote, I can write to you today with great thankfulness to our Heavenly Father for the privilege of again addressing my dear wife and sending my congratulations to my home. You will have learned before this reaches you that Fort Donelson has surrendered. I am happy to write that the 25th Indiana bore a worthy part in the conflict and triumph. We made two charges on the rifle pits and fortifications on the 13th and on the 15th. Yesterday, after the surrender, the 25th Indiana was the second regiment to enter the fort. 
We are now occupying huts in the fort lately occupied by the second, Rebel, Kentucky. This was the regiment which fought us so desperately in the rifle pits on the 13th. Our charge on the 13th was desperate, over the steep and rugged hills, covered with felled timber and under a most terrific fire. The fire of musketry was thick as hail. The cannon raked us on both flanks and in front, and the storm of shot, shell, grape, and canister was awful. You can say to our friends that the 25th has been tried in most perilous positions and has acted like veterans. In the thickest of the fight, the officers and most of the men seemed to lose all sense of personal danger. We have a host of prisoners and a large amount of stores. I am very tired and sore from our four days labor. Four nights we slept on the wet or frozen ground without tents or fires and both day and night under arms. When I get a little sleep and rest, I will write you fully. In our regiment, the total of killed is 14, wounded 99, unquote. General Grant's account of the weather alluded to in this letter was, quote, it was midwinter and we had rain and snow thawing and freezing alternately. It would not do to allow campfires, except far down the hill out of sight of the enemy, and it would not do to allow many of the troops to remain there at the same time. The weather turned intensely cold on the evening of the 14th, unquote. Immediately after the battle, a representative of the Evansville Journal was sent to Fort Donelson to make a report of the battle and the situation. I extract the following, quote, A detailed account of the battle will not be attempted, as you have already published an excellent one. I will speak more particularly of our 25th and of the incidents of the battle and the appearance of the field as seen by us. The 25th covered themselves all over with glory. Everybody we talked to gave them credit for the utmost bravery. Exposed to a terrible crossfire of artillery and musketry, having to charge through the difficulties I have described right up in the teeth of the rebel batteries and into their murderous volleys, they passed through the fiery ordeal like veterans. On their end of the line, the rebels first proposed to surrender, and to them belongs a large part of the glory of the victory. This honor is conceded to them. It is hard and would be invidious to mention particular cases of gallantry in the 25th, where all did their duty so well. The field officers all did their duty nobly. For coolness and determination, Major Foster is the theme of general praise. Quartermaster Foster and Chaplain Hearing made themselves very useful and showed great courage in attending to the dead and wounded on the field." Unquote. I have thus given an account of the battle from participants and others who had seen the field. But there is always another view of every battle, that to be seen in the faraway homes of the wives and mothers of the combatants. As representing the thousands who waited at home through the days of dread anxiety to know the fate of their loved ones, I give a letter from my wife dated February 20. Quote, After four days of painful suspense and anxious waiting, when the news came last night that you were safe, you may be sure that there was one thankful, grateful heart. Such dreary days and sleepless nights I hope I may never pass again. The first news of the battle reached here Saturday noon, and not one word did we hear of you till last night. Such a relief I never before experienced in my life to know that you were safe 
and well. All the accounts say you acted bravely and nobly, and we are all as proud of you as we can be. Oh, if I could only see you once more, my own dear husband. No one knows how thankful I am that you were spared while exposed to terrible dangers. I began to feel on Tuesday that you must be safe, or we should have some report of it. I remembered that you said if I didn't hear, I might know that all was right. But I could not rest until Willie Gwen dispatched that all was right. I have heard today that on Monday it was reported and believed at first that you had been mortally wounded and next that you were killed. But kind friends did not let these reports reach me. A party went down to the fort from here on Tuesday. I then had heard nothing from you and I thought I would hear sooner by staying at home. Then father was away and I didn't know what to do. Another boat goes today. If we thought there was any prospect at all of seeing you, father and I would go. But everyone regards it as so uncertain about your still being there that I guess we won't go. It would only be an aggravation to go and not see you. I hope it will not be long before I have something from your own dear self. Mr. Schoenfield, regimental sutler, was very kind. He dispatched and wrote father that you and Alex were safe and did bravely. The dispatch came last night, Wednesday, and the letter by packet this morning. He said you wrote a few lines and he sent it, but fearing it did not reach us, he wrote himself. We've not received anything from you at all and are very thankful to him indeed. Such kindness, I assure you, we appreciate. The news of the surrender reached here Monday, causing intense excitement and wild joy. But I could not rejoice till I heard from my dear one. And oh, the dead and wounded, how much suffering and grief has been brought to many, many hearts. When we think of the suffering, it takes away most of the rejoicing. I am proud of you, my dear John. I always knew that you would do your duty nobly, and I thank God your life has been spared. Father and your mother came back from Cincinnati on Tuesday. I was glad to see Father, for he is so kind to me. Write soon. Unquote. Reference is made in this letter to the steamboats making trips to Fort Donelson after the battle. The cities and states of the Middle West vied with each other in dispatching steamers, carrying hospital supplies, and in bringing home the wounded and the sick. Governor Morton of Indiana was a visitor, and immediately after the writing of the foregoing letter, my father brought on one of those boats my wife, my little daughter, and brother Willie. Their stay was only for one day, but it brought to us all much joy and consolation. On our first day's fighting, I had found one of the lieutenants skulking, having left the ranks, and he was hiding flat down under the bank of a little stream. I punched him out with my sword and made him join his company, much to the delight of the men who saw the act. The storage went home in a very exaggerated shape, and I was credited with using to the lieutenant some very severe and profane language. Willie, who had heard the story and who entertained a high admiration for me, was greatly grieved and shocked. As soon as the boat landed at the fort, Willie rushed up to me and, throwing his arms about me, said, quote, Brother John, you did not curse and swear at the soldier, did you? Unquote. The capture of Fort Donelson was the first important and complete victory which had been won by the Union armies since the war began and it was hailed with great joy throughout the North as the harbinger of further victories. General Sherman, ten years after the event, characterized it as, quote, the first real success on our side in the Civil War. 
Probably at no time during the war did we feel so heavy a weight raised from our hearts or so thankful for a most fruitful series of victories." Unquote. In a letter of February 23, I acknowledged the receipt of my wife's letter above quoted in these terms, quote, George, my eldest brother, brought me yesterday the letters by you and father on the 20th. They were such good ones, I could not help the tears coming to my eyes. When I read your letters, I began fully to realize how great was my deliverance. During all the war, I probably never will be in so hot a fire and so much danger as that through which I passed during the late battles. Truly, we have great reason to thank God for his kind protection over me. Do you remember the psalm Mr. McCarrer, our pastor, read the last night at our house before I left with the regiment, the 91st? I got out my Bible and read it today again. I have read it many times since then. I am proud of you, my dear Park, for the manner in which you have acted ever since I have been in the army, but especially during and since the attack on the fort. You have learned by the experience of the late battles to put little reliance in the first reports of an engagement. They are always exaggerated. I was very glad to have a visit from George. I sent home some playthings for Alice by him. The rebels had fixed them up to shoot her papa with them. She can make better use of them, some canister and six-pounder shots. I sent you a letter right after the fight and sent father one after the first day's fight. But the mails are so irregular, it may be you did not get them. I would have sent a dispatch, but there was no telegraph nearer than Cairo. We were greatly exposed during the four nights of the siege, and the officers had the same exposure as the men, at least all those who stood by their posts, sleeping on the ground with no tents and no fires, two nights both rain and snow, the others severely cold. By the time we got into the fort, I was nearly tired out, and during all this week I have been resting. The exposure did not affect me much, except that it increased a cold already contracted. But I am all right again and ready to go into active service. How long we shall remain here, I do not know. It may be for some time. It may be only today. Unquote. Under date of the 24th, I wrote, quote, We are still in the fort, living in the rebel huts. I am getting very tired of our inactive life of the past week. And the worst of it is, I'm afraid we will be left here for some time to come, as we see no evidence of preparing for our advance. We'd like very much to be sent forward. I suppose you have no special desire to have me get into another fight soon, but from present appearances, there is not much probability of more fighting in Tennessee. This is a very poor country around the fort and had already been eaten out by the rebel troops before ours came. There is nothing in the eating line we can buy for our mess, and we have had poorer fare here than at any time since we have been in the service. I began to feel like I could relish a good dinner at home. The following, dated March 1, is a reference to the visit to the fort of my wife and father, already noticed. Quote, Only day before yesterday, my dear wife and darling babe were with me here. I need not tell you how pleasant was your visit to me made doubly so under the circumstances here, and then that I missed you so sadly after you were gone. But we cannot have pleasures unalloyed. I was glad you made the trip, aside from the pleasure of seeing you, as the excursion was a pleasant change for you and Alice. I wonder if you will remember tomorrow that it is my birthday, 26 years old, quite an old man. Unquote. Under date of March 4, record is made of the expected order. 
quote, We received marching orders yesterday. We are to go from here to Fort Henry, there to take steamers on the Tennessee River. Whether up or down the river, we do not know, but our supposition is that we are destined for the direction of Florence, Alabama. It may be a movement on Memphis by the flank. We are all pleased with the prospect of getting still further south. Our greatest want now in the way of marching is wagons for transportation, and that is likely to be the want during all the marches. I, with quite a number of officers, have concluded to send our trunks home. We field officers are limited by General Grant's orders to 100 pounds of baggage to include clothing, bedclothes, mess chest, and everything personal. And as I think as much of a warm bed and good rations as I do of good clothes, I have put a change of underclothes into my saddle valise, and with my carpet sack can get along. Then Colonel Morgan and I have gone in partnership in an old trunk for our dress uniforms, shirts, etc. I send my shabrack, saddle cover, in the bottom of the trunk, have it taken out, well brushed, and hung up in the attic. It is rather too gay to wear out here in the woods. It will do for musters and parades at home. End of chapter 3. Recording by Nelson Hay.